0: You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm David Manty, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing Podcast. With me this week are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry for our brands like Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites and discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at jeff, david, or anna at ian.com with email the podcast in the subject line. We're also live every Thursday at 1.30, so subscribe to us on YouTube at IAN Magazine to get a notification when we go live. Jeff, how are you doing this week?
2: Good, David. Just enjoying the balmy twenty degree weather we're enjoying here in sun soaked Wisconsin. <laughs>
1: after yeah, sun soaked. After you know minus ten degrees, you know you walk outside and you're like, oh, it's a nice day, and then you walk into your car and realize it's twenty. Except I have an issue with how
2: bright it gets. Like not an oh. issue. I'm not complaining about the sun. I'm no. not anti sun. Sounds yeah, like you're like are. Anna's anti jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it seems so incredibly bright now it's when the sun
1: is out. Time for it's those crazy. blue blockers. Yeah, you need mm-hmm. the the wrap around. Uh, Anna, how are you doing? Same trouble with the sun?
0: No, I'm not bothered by it as much, I guess. Um, Before we start, though, I want to sneak this in because I need to eat crow real quick. Uh, uh, One of our listeners, I don't want to forget to say this, that's why I'm ushering (laughs) it in right now. Um, Thank you to Brent for writing in this week. So uh, last week I made a point about uh, American businesses trying to decouple from China mm-hmm. and I used a, a reference to Volvo being owned by Geely Group uh, and he pointed out to me that Volvo Cars and Volvo Trucks are actually owned by different companies oh, okay. so uh, Volvo Cars is owned by Geely. Volvo Trucks who owns Mac is not oh, so okay. the way that I characterized that was incorrect so oh. I just want to point that out to the audience, thanks for keeping us
1: yeah thanks in in check oh my goodness that's a that's a final thought you know we took errors and omissions go like after final thought well i didn't just kind of like you know right after the close it's like oh and we forgot to mention
0: sometimes you get in the groove though and then i was just afraid that it wouldn't get said so i wanted to make sure it got said
1: oh no understandable well thanks again brent for bringing that up uh we need like a stat person like live (laughs) fact checking Do we? (laughs) No, I don't think we do. I think we (laughs) need it like in theory and to just throw it out there and forget about it. We got one. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, before we get started, we have a word from our sponsor this week, Oil Eater. If you aren't creating video content for your business, you're missing out. Why is video so important? Increase conversions. Increase email marketing click-through rates. Improve SEO. Build trust. Help explain complex subjects and equipment and improve social media engagement. How many of you view video content on a daily basis? Isn't it time people start viewing some of yours? Promote your brand with Unit 202. Let's get to work. And we're back. Sorry for the little sponsor switcheroo there. We have Unit 202 Productions as our sponsor this week, not Oil Eater. But you still can get a free sample of oil eater as well. All right. Our first story this week. Manufacturer sells workers with Toledo plant. Detroit Manufacturing Systems recently sold its plant in Toledo, Ohio, to tier one auto supplier, Mako International. Luckily for the contract manufacturers, more than 300 workers, they won't be out of work. As part of the deal... All Detroit Manufacturing Systems employees were offered positions and stayed on with Mako. According to DMS, the plant was sold because Mako expanded their Stellantis manufacturing offerings. The plant has produced cockpit assemblies for the Jeep Wrangler and Jeep Gladiator. Anna, I know that you had some issues with how the headline on this one was reworked, but it's still an interesting story as to how, you know, the workers, the employees were part of the deal.
0: Yes. And I do think it's an interesting story, but I'm glad that you brought up the headline because I want to make it clear that this was not the headline that I wrote that suggests that actual humans had been sold along with the plant. That's well, not what happened here.
1: They were <laughs> sold with the plant. And as the person that reworked the headline, I stand by it. <laughs> I'm with Anna on this one.
0: Yeah. It was... a. Uh, it was a, a negotiation that involved offering jobs to these workers that were already working for Detroit Manufacturing Systems. It was kind of a, a cool story. This came to us via a press release that um, Detroit Manufacturing Systems had produced. Um, they operated this plant for four years. They were not exactly clear on why the plant was sold. Perhaps their contract work ran out in this region. Um, they didn't say. I asked, but they didn't say. <laughs> um but they did say that DMS still has one location in Detroit. It's They've got 1,200 union employees, 300 salary employees, um, very functional wow. operational company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it was in any case some sort of like they had to flee the area or anything because they were in trouble. It sounds like they're a very <laughs> solid company. But regardless of why, I thought the story was great. And it was nice to see some dedicated what felt like planning and foresight here where these companies were able to work together and run kind of on the same timeline. Yeah. Um, that in the end, it worked out for everybody involved. Now Mako can obviously get get up and running faster. That's a big benefit to them. Um, as for DMS, you know, you hear companies constantly talking about how we're a family and culture is so important to us and we care so much about our workers. But then you see those same companies in these periods of transition drop those workers. Oh yeah. With very little notice, you mm. know, like uh, layoffs, closures, stuff like that. People shutting plants down and people show up and the door's locked. Um, to me, this felt good. It was like DMS didn't have to do this. They did. You know, they worked out this deal. Um, we see it go the other way, like nine times out of ten, mm-hmm. where the employees don't feel like they're really a consideration, um, despite all the platitudes that they offer the market. Um, in this case, it was different. And I thought it was just sort of a heartwarming story.
1: No, so. it was a feel-good story. And it was kind of cool how – It seems like the two companies have been working together for about two years just to make this transition happen. Jeff, another part is that Mako, after working for two years with DMS, believes that it's a good culture fit. So it seems like it's going to be a pretty fluid transition, which isn't always normal when it comes to an acquisition.
2: I really hate the stance I'm going to take on this one. Oh, my God. Because initially it is very positive and you do have to applaud these two companies for working together to Kind of add to the negotiations to ensure these jobs are kept, I'm just worried about how long these jobs are going to be there. Because when I look at this, what it feels like to me, when you look at Detroit manufacturing systems, they're a very diverse contract manufacturer. They're into healthcare, they're into defense, they're into recreational. It's all somewhat automotive adjacent, but mm-hmm. it's still a diverse customer base. And when you look at some of the things that's going on with the products that are made at this facility for Stellantis, for their Jeep brands, Stellantis has been down. They did Mm -hmm. see now, and it's been weird in automotive. So to really compare year-over-year sales numbers and things like that, it's not really fair. But the Jeep numbers did peak. They've been solid and steady, but there's still huge supply chain issues there that I think have led to a lot of the sales declines that we have seen because they have been down the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. My concern is Detroit Manufacturing Systems, as a contract manufacturer, said these supply chain issues, they're going to be issues for another two years. We're not going to be out of this right away. We don't want to get locked in this heavily to one marketplace. Mako, this is what they are. They're a tier one automotive supplier. They're in up to their elbow. They're a big company. I just hope this isn't a short-term solution mm. because Detroit manufacturing systems could be say we're getting out of this. This is not what we want to be about. This company is taking over in the short term, but if these supply chain issues persist, I could see this being a short-term good news story. Mm. Maybe not long-term. That would well, be my
1: concern. We'll focus on the short-term good news. Um I saw Mako in their statement said, we appreciate everyone's cooperation and support over the next few months as we continue to transform Mako Toledo into a best in class operation. And I just like when a company comes out and really nicely says, get in line. (laughs) This is how we do things and we're going to do them our way. So, uh, (laughs) but they appreciate their cooperation and support. Um, Another part of this that was, uh, that Mako made a point of addressing on its website was stating that they had uh, thanks to the employees who had traveled from other Mako facilities to this facility over the past year just to try and help this transition um, work. I thought that was pretty cool as well. I guess um, it makes you think of Lightyear, the Lightyear story that we're going to cover in a little bit, where um, workers are a premium right now you know and mm-hmm. so i can understand how that is a big part of a you know a a, a merger or acquisition where it's like hey if we don't have the people this plant is worthless mm-hmm. so i could see this you know while it's not the norm as you said anna you know 9 times out of 10 we don't see this maybe it's something that becomes you know maybe it's something that becomes a little bit more Popular,
0: maybe I, maybe. I mean, you know, we see a lot of headlines about job cuts, but the most recent Fed report on open jobs has we there's still 11 million open yeah. jobs right now, which is much higher than anyone is expecting it to be still after all of these, uh, you know, these Fed interest rate hikes and inflation taming activities. Uh, it's goes against the norm. It goes against what is being is expected right now. And it's a huge challenge for employers.
1: Jeff, so did you look at the story and just say, "Mm mm-mm, too good to be true? A little bit. Yeah, a little (laughs) bit. Just Just because, I mean, I think it's great.
2: Detroit, I mean, they added to the process, okay? They did not have to do these things, and that is wonderful. And you feel good for those 300 people now. Yeah. I just looked at the background, and
1: it makes me nervous because there was also nothing said about long-term guarantees here. Right. We need to start a new segment. Does it pass? Jeff's sniff test.
2: Hey, I, I introduce this by saying I don't like no feeling about I, this. I, know. I hate myself. Mm, for I don't this. like that. This I, is where I went here, but got a real uneasy I've, feeling,
1: guys. Seen this before? <laughs> well, our next most popular story. I don't think this is something you've seen before. <laughs> tiny radioactive capsule sets off major health scare in Australia. A tiny radioactive capsule about the size of a small watch battery was lost and it caused an urgent public health warning. The capsule was lost along a 870-mile route between Perth and a mine in Pilbara. The capsule is quite radioactive, about the same as getting 10 x-rays in one hour for anyone within one meter of it. Radioactive capsules like this are often used as gauges for mining operations. The device emits both beta rays and gamma rays, so you can get burned, among other things, if you're too close for too long. What's crazy is how this thing was lost. It fell off a truck. Officials believe the capsule got loose from its container when a bolt fell out during a bumpy ride and left a convenient bolt hole for the capsule to escape through. This is like the plot of a Curious George episode. (laughs) A search party blanketed the area to try and recover the device, and Rio Tinto, the mining company responsible for losing the capsule, issued a public apology. Anna, of the many stories that recover, this one had a pretty swift and positive ending, But come on. It's like it fell off the truck. Just how do you you're taking inventory when the truck Mm -hmm. docks and you're like, hey, where's that incredibly dangerous radioactive thing that could burn people? Anyone see that? Like, yeah.
0: Yeah. It is so unbelievable that it just has to be true. It's just like, what? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. I it mean, ripped from the headlines.
0: Ripped from the headlines. Ripped I know, It's a
1: comic book. <laughs> I know, yeah. very ridiculous. This is how superhero origin stories happen. Yes.
0: Can you get close to it if you're wearing that like heavy blanket vest from the dentist?
1: <laughs> <that> you, <laughs> they put yeah. On you if you're <laughs> wearing that, at least your chest doesn't burn. Everything else burns. Just burns. Yeah, because this tiny battery is killing you quickly.
0: Yes, and to me, one of the most uh, interesting elements of this story. Um, is how it came down to an issue of torque, yes? Like, once again, we've seen how how many times this occur where a lowly bolt was either under or over-tightened and the results have been catastrophic. We've seen, like, you know, thousands of vehicles recalled, infrastructure collapse, radioactive capsule escapes (laughs) enclosure and falls somewhere along a 1,400-kilometer route in the outback of Australia.
1: Yeah, there's a mechanic somewhere that's like, oh, that is my bad. What happened?
0: I am so... so sorry. Really
1: sorry. That individual is not raising their hand. No. <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: uh, luckily, um, as you alluded to earlier, this actually has already been resolved. Um, and it was characterized as like finding a needle in a haystack, but they did find this capsule earlier this week in the, the vast outback <laughs> of Australia. Um, the The pea-sized capsule was the subject of an all-hands-on-deck search Um According to the BBC, everyone from nuclear science specialists and the emergency management agency to radiation protection officials all involved. The fact that they found this so quickly is nothing short of incredible Mm
2: -hmm.
0: because initially they had feared um, that it had become lodged in the tire of someone's vehicle. So they were like, it could be anywhere, right? Um, ultimately, they, they used some uh, portable radiation survey meters, and then they got additional resources from the government um, described as radiation portal monitors and gamma ray spectrometers, which they were actually able to attach to vehicles, and then they were able to achieve the best possible outcome and, and find it in the end. So thank God for technology, I guess. Um, if th- this had happened like a handful of decades ago, I feel like it would still be out there. Oh yeah, Um, so that's a relief,
1: Jeff. I'm just happy a kid or other curious person didn't find this on a walk
0: or curious monkey
1: or curious monkey. Some dingo out there getting exposed to gamma radiation. That's right. What is Banner? What was being pitched in the office? Mega dingo. (laughs) This (laughs) is the beginning of Mega Dingo. Yes, yeah, yeah. Or killer kangaroo.
2: Cesium one thirty seven. Am I saying that correctly? Cesium. Yeah. I mean, this is. Obviously, as you alluded to, some super serious stuff. Whenever there is fallout from – like when we talked about Fukushima, when we talked about um, um, – in Russia, Ukraine. um, Oh, uh, Chernobyl. Chernobyl. This is the stuff that they're most fearful of and Uh and the impact that can have. So thankfully, it was found quickly. The other thing that's kind of interesting is how valuable this Uh element is. It's actually on a per gram or per ounce basis. It's more expensive than gold. Oh, wow. So it is highly valuable. So again, that reinforces the fact that – you think they would have taken care of it a
1: little bit better. <laughs> right.
2: So it is kind of shocking. I think one of the biggest takeaways, I mean, you guys have kind of hit all the high points here, but the reaction of Rio Tinto, which has left itself open to numerous levels of criticism when it comes to the way they run their minds from a safety perspective, from an environmental perspective. They're a highly criticized enterprise, mm-hmm. okay? And I'm not going to get into that, but the response that they took to this, I think is different than you'd have seen any industrial company take even 10 years ago. They were all over this. They were very transparent. They Mm -hmm. said exactly what it was, exactly what they thought would happen. There was no conjecture. There was no, at least that we know of, Mm -hmm. no conspiracy, no cover-up, whatever you want to say. And I I think that does – Say something about the fact that there's an evolution in terms of the way companies are communicating about these things, understanding there is a social responsibility as well. So I'm not gonna say kudos to them because they lost a piece of <laughs> radioactive equipment here. Good. But I think it does say something maybe about the industry as a whole in terms of taking being more accountable mm-hmm. when these things do happen.
1: And thankfully they invested in what they needed to, to find it very quickly. <laughs> well, yeah, it was so it was a hundred people that were in the search of what, 870 miles? And they were accountable, but they did also do the, yes, we're going to do everything we can, yeah. but maybe it wasn't our fault right. because they did the, uh, They Rio Tinto came out and said they used the device in a gauge at its iron ore mine in the area. And it said that it regularly transports and stores dangerous goods as part of its business and hires expert contractors <laughs> who are in charge of handling this radioactive yep. material. So we're going to do everything we can to find this, but it's not our fault necessarily. Yeah, well, talk to, thought, to those contractors. One of the interesting things they brought
2: up too is how frequently these materials are transported over this route. Yeah. How does that make anybody feel better? I that mean, is not a good point to make. Yeah, we do this all the time. I mean, we hardly ever lose anything.
1: Yeah, if you do it Wait all the time, minute. check the truck for holes more often. Come on, man. Run a cup of water through it. Um, it only had a half-life of 30 years. So if it wasn't yeah. found, you know, by the time we're into our 90s or so, uh, oh, Jesus, 70s, 70s, 60s, you know, let's not talk about math. Uh, it would have been, uh, it would have been dead.
0: Half-life. Half-life. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It would have been half-life. It would have been half-dead.
1: Like 300 years. It's still, yeah, okay. active. Okay. Um, it was found on a remote road and- they needed to find it, but did you see the area they cleared? So it's like, it was like 30 yeah. meters away. It's like, all right, someone find this very tiny device and then get just get away from it as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it was found six days after it was lost, and it was six feet off the road. It was just, when you think of... <laughs> dink, dink, dink. Yeah. <laughs> just when God, just when you think of an eight millimeter high, six millimeter round device falling off a truck on a remote road... <laughs> about 900 miles long. It's incredible that they found that in six days. Just incredible.
0: Yeah, and David, I I have to say, based on Jeff's response to the first story, I thought that his position on this was going to be, I wish that they never would have found it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, well, it's good. It's good that he was on the other side. Glad that we can agree. Glad I get your approval. Glad that we
0: can agree that we're glad that it was found.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, this came after I was going to bring just another thing that we ran this week talking about that town where there are that the company was basically just burying all those chemicals oh, and the spike in cancer cases and all that. And again, the difference being there, you had a company basically hiding these secrets for decades mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: here. You had a company at least owning up within days for yeah, sure. So. Yeah. Doing the right thing. All right. Our next most popular story. OSHA finds duct tape machine guards following worker fatality. Great Lakes Polymer Technologies is a plastics manufacturer in Kingman, Kansas. The company faces nearly $300,000 in OSHA penalties after a worker was killed last summer while trying to clear a bagging machine. According to OSHA, the employee got caught in a rotating part inside the machine and was pulled into the rotating bars. An OSHA investigation found duct tape over the safety interlock, which was used to prevent the machine from shutting down. Great Lakes, which is doing business as Fab Pro Polymers, makes plastic fibers used in cement and other construction materials. Jeff, the company was also fined for training problems and fall hazards, but let's focus on that duct tape. That, if that's not a safety red flag to anyone and everyone in that plant, I don't know what else could be. Yeah, this
2: is. We just keep having these these stories about disabling these machine guards and disabling the lockout tagout stuff. It's kind of mind blowing. Forget the three hundred grand here mm-hmm. for a minute. When you're looking at this, what the impact was here? somebody being sucked into this piece yeah. of equipment. I mean, it's just tragic. And what's kind of also, you know, the the National Safety Council puts out their top ten incident report every year at mm-hmm. the safety show. Excuse me. <clears throat> And it's based on the number of OSHA fines that are registered under those headings. And for the last five years or so, we had seen the number of um, fines issued for machine guarding and lockout tagout violations decrease until last year. Mm-hmm. In 2022, mm. we saw both of those do an uptick. It wasn't huge, but it was going the wrong direction. And that's concerning for a number of reasons. And one of the things that I think about immediately is a lot of the new market elements that are out there that are potentially pushing – enterprises to embrace rounding the corners when it comes to safety Mm -hmm. and the impacts are obviously detrimental and horrible. Forget the money. We're talking about people's lives. Right. So, when we look at the fact that we're under supply chain pressure, we look at you know this company putting out plastics and infrastructure, thing, products that are used in building and infrastructure, you could see how it, the focus was on we need to get this product out the door. We're getting a premium price right now. They don't have enough of it. Move, move, move. Safety gets pushed to the side. Mm-hmm. That's a culture issue. That's oh, a yeah. management issue. That isn't a worker knowledge issue. That is taking shortcuts that you have to feel start from the very top. And are right. reinforced down throughout the organization for something like duct tape. The, yeah. the other part of that, when you look, to think about it is when it's that elemental or that basic mm-hmm. and somebody sees OSHA people coming through and they just don't take the duct tape off the button. Yeah. I mean, that just reinforces how this is ingrained as a, this is what we do. This is how, this is business as usual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what's doubly dangerous when we read about these types of instances. Right. It's not just completely ignoring the safety element. It's just how ingrained it is into the consciousness of all of those workers. That's right. the biggest
1: problem. Well, and Anna, I, would, I like the – oh, I don't like. I, I see the supply chain pressure angle on a lot of these su- safety stories that we do. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to a company that's been cited previously in the past, um, I think it just is straight up culture and bad management
0: it it is um but i i first want to say i totally agree with jeff that this is uh you know this is a culture problem that's inexcusable mm-hmm. um but to your point yeah i mean that osha cited this company at the same facility for similar violations in 2019 Uh, One of the local uh, news stations reported that a group called FactFinder 12 looked into FabPro's history, which included other OSHA violations dating back to 2016. Twice in 2016, the company was cited for five violations that OSHA classified as serious. And they fined the company at the time $40,000. In 2019, the company again was cited for five serious violations after a worker lost a finger in an accident. Um, This led to another fine of $47,000. I know we talk a lot about how meager fines don't create deterrence. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, I think, uh, you know, to Jeff's point, you just got to call out this company for being completely negligent and remiss in basic safety procedures. Um, I agree that OSHA needs to escalate its fine structure. And it it is in reality. Um, if you look at how maximum penalties for serious and other than serious violations have increased um to over $15,000 per violation compared to 2015 when fines were only 7,000. Mm-hmm. So they've more than doubled in the last, you know, handful of years. Um keep going OSHA, but this doesn't stop with OSHA. This is basic decency on the part of these plant managers. I mean, you know, your point about the tape, if no one sees that as a problem, there are not layers of checks and balances in that company. There's somebody at the top who knows what they're doing that's not doing it. And everyone else has tuned it out. They feel maybe like they're being taken care of and they're not. They don't know that they're not, you know. That's inexcusable. Um, The OSHA area director for Wichita, Kansas, Todd Underwood, uh, gave the following quote after this happened. He said, proper machine safety procedures and training could have prevented this worker from losing his life. The manufacturing industry knows well That moving machine parts can be deadly, especially when proper guards are not used and safety procedures are ignored. And that's the key for me. Mm -hmm. Like we can call it OSHA as much as we want, and I know we still will, but at the same time, like this is honestly pretty basic and this is where it starts.
1: Well, and it comes down to employees either have to be fearful of reporting something like that and there being some sort of um, uh, penalty internally Mm internally from that, or Kind of when we talked about alarm fatigue a few weeks ago, you can have a culture of when you have these devices defeated for so long and you don't have you don't have an incident like this, people don't think it's necessarily unsafe uh-huh. because nothing's ever happened so Fab Pro polymers was previously cited for improper machine guarding. You had mentioned the amputation and other caught in hazards. if anything. You also, these companies also have to think about their exposure to wrongful death lawsuits, which we've seen an uptick in with a lot of these accidents. It also made me look into this specific uh, machine where this happened. It's called a compression auto bagger. Uh, So, this company, which does concrete reinforcing fibers, you would recognize these machines because they're also the machines that are used to fill like those giant peat moss and wood shaving bags. Okay. So it like compresses everything. They go into the bag and then it's completely sealed tight, uh, form fill and seal packaging. Um, and they are just, first of all, they're impressive machines, mm-hmm. but incredibly dangerous. Like I can't think that you would look into that machine and think that you could go in and have any body part exposed in these machines without it being incredibly dangerous. Um, I also wanted to call out two particular uh Um, comments that we had on the site the first one was by john cooley um who is a uh, frequent commenter on the website he says question is was the bypassed safety done by management or by lazy workers i have seen safety switches disabled because a repairman doesn't want to walk 50 feet to a switch box and i understand that Mm -hmm. um you know but sometimes we kind of race ourselves to the bottom by trying to blame individuals rather than seeing it as a company problem. Yeah. Um, I'm more with KJ on this one, which is sometimes rare when it comes to KJ's comments. But he says, I don't care who you are. If any safety device is defeated, stay the hell out. Do not operate. Do not touch. At the minimum, call maintenance. If no resolution, call management. Any job is not worth your life. Perfectly said, KJ. All right, our next most popular story. Lightyear declares bankruptcy. Last week, Lightyear's solar car hit a roadblock when the company announced plans to stop production on the Lightyear Zero, a revolutionary but pricey solar car. They wanted to pivot production to the Lightyear 2, which is a more economical solar EV with more mass appeal. Now, at the time, this seemed really sudden. And when I say at the time, normally that's longer ago than five days. But it seemed pretty sudden that Lightyear had begun production on the Zero less than two months ago and planned on using that money to fund the Two's development. Well, on Friday, as we were recording this podcast... Talking about that previous story, like literally at the exact same time, reports surfaced regarding the bankruptcy of Atlas Technologies. Atlas is a Lightyear subsidiary, and its demise likely means the end of the solar electric car maker. Some 600 employees are likely out of a job at Lightyear, which is based in the Netherlands. The company doesn't have the money to pay salaries. However, the bankruptcy curator charged with sussing out the financials is trying to keep all staff on board for the immediate future. He believes that the staff could be key to making production restart more possible. The company held previous talks with potential investment partners, so it is possible, however, unlikely, that Lightyear could live on if a suitor is found. Salaries are being paid by a Dutch benefits organization, UWV Employee Insurance Agency, for the time being. However this restart could have some sticking points regarding the intellectual property and who owns what. Only a few Lightyear zeros ever made it off the line. And Anna, the curator, is also investigating how Lightyear came to such a sudden and swift end. It is, in, you know, when you record the podcast once a week, every once in a while you get these stories where as you're trying to, as we're actively contemplating on the podcast i wonder what how it's going to shake out yeah and it's shaking out in real time Bing. yeah um do you think Lightyear stands a chance or the Lightyear zero solar ev stands a chance at living on or you know are these employees just kind of on for the interim and then maybe on to something else
0: it's hard to know. There's a lot happening here. So, uh, of course, it's anybody's guess, but I would like to take a glass half full perspective on this only because I'm excited about this product. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we try not to extrapolate too much about this bankruptcy in the future of this company, Bankruptcy doesn't necessarily mean the end of the road for Lightyear or any other company that files for bankruptcy. We've seen so many companies dead in the water. Did you think you would see a Sears operating in this year still? I mean, like JCPenney's there's still one by my house. Why? Um, okay. I like
1: <laughs> To get a great deal on Slack Anna. That's I guess,
0: I- but like you you can survive bankruptcy and still go on to do great things like JCPenney. Hmm. Um <laughs> Bad example. Uh, No, but I mean, like, major, many major automakers have filed for bankruptcy before. I mean, Chrysler has, GM has. uh, That was not even that long ago. Um, And, you know, obviously there's a legacy difference there between, you know, GM and Lightyear. But I think it also speaks to the fact of how hard the car business is. It's very capital intensive. There's a ton of R&D involved. Um, When you look at a company like Lightyear, who's really pioneering a completely new power source in auto, Mm -hmm. um, the R&D has got to be insane, right? Right. Uh, So it's a tall order for anyone to do this and be successful. Um, But I don't think that that means that Lightyear is dead necessarily. As you mentioned, the bankruptcy curator seems to have some insights here that maybe are not public, but do indicate to to him that... Um, he believes this is potentially salvageable, mm-hmm. and he wants to give them some more time to pull themselves out of this. The curator said that he will look to restart business focusing on the more affordable Lightyear too, as you mentioned. Um, the company said that in the coming period, the trustee will focus on the position of the employees and creditors, as well as assessing how the Lightyear concept can be continued. Mm-hmm. I think the benefit here maybe is that Lightyear already has the pivot in place. Mm-hmm. Um, they've already said, like, we were we were doing this the wrong way. We're going to backtrack and we're going to do it the other way. Uh, they didn't just, like, accidentally arrive at this conclusion, I don't think. Um, and so hopefully if we can find a way for them to build that cheaper, more popular car first – uh, maybe based on the number of pre-orders that they have, they could find some funding for that. I don't yeah. know that you know if they can validate those as being legit. Um, was it like forty thousand pre-orders they have on that?
1: Sixty thousand with the uh, yeah. fleet, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I mean that's like a pretty that um, shows a lot of interest in their product line. So if they can find somebody to to help support that, cool. I think that's what this curator is doing is trying to make sure that they don't pull the pin on that too fast before they figure that out. That's just due diligence. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be able to continue, but I hope that they will.
1: That's, it's fairly straightforward math when it comes to trying to find a suitor, Jeff. And it has to say something. We've seen startups go under and it's an immediate fire sale. So the fact, and maybe it's because it's a European startup, maybe procedures are different there, but it has to be, there has to be some small, however minuscule light at the end of the tunnel that they're willing to keep 600 people employed paid by an insurance agency trying to salvage this operation. I think there's a common sentiment that everybody would
2: want this to work. Mm. Okay. And I want to be one of those people. Oh no. Mm.
0: Here comes can't. Jeff. I just I
2: just can't. I just – when you look at – this isn't a, a chapter, is it 7 or 11, that's sort of a reorganization form of bankruptcy. This is – they're saying we can't pay people. We're not solvent enough to do that. That's where this curator or trustee or whatever you want to call them is coming in and really working again because there is all this intellectual property yes. that has a tremendous amount of value. You mentioned the 60,000 back orders. All of those things are there. This is where I go into – and again, this is my own opinion – Don't you feel like there would be some sort of angel investor who would just be all over this if there wasn't something else going on? I feel like there has to be something with the technology that was somewhat of a hold up here. I really do. Because in the past, whenever we've talked about solar cars, they just can't put enough real estate on the roof or Mm -hmm. any place else on the vehicle to uh, to capture enough energy to keep that battery charged. They're talking about a 500-mile range here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's a but it's an EV that's supplemented yeah. with solar power. I get that, yeah. But it just feels like there has to be some sort of gap here that people are not connecting with, yeah. For it to run out of money this close to really potentially getting actual cars on the road, yeah, that's where that's where I've got concerns. I want it to work too because this seems perfect. Mm-hmm. This is what we're looking for. We don't have to worry about all of these all of these uh, rare earth minerals and stuff for the stuff for the batteries for EVs. I mean, like I said, it seems like a perfect fit. There's just got to be some disconnect there that they're struggling so much to
1: get the final financing they need to get over the hump. That makes sense. Um, you talk about the IP. The biggest sticking point is the IP because Lightyear still has some subsidiaries that have escaped bankruptcy. And there's some, there's some idea that maybe these subsidiaries would try to hold on to the IP, but then with that, the idea and the jobs are as good as dead.
2: But if you're a, you know, and I'm just throwing names out, if you're a Jeff Bezos or a Bill Gates and you see something like this and you really want to make a difference and make a big splash, what they're needing here mm. is nothing compared to what those guys have. Oh you yeah. know? And it feels like all of those other problems, they could be worked out pretty quickly if we actually want to get this thing on the road. Wait,
0: so you think that there's a problem with the car because Jeff Bezos hasn't invested in it?
1: Exactly. <laughs> and Bill Gates. Although Gates has been on toilets. He's not really into cars. Yeah, he's got some other stuff.
0: Yeah. And Bezos has that. A yacht, you know,
1: yeah, they the r- want to make them in space. Anyway, superboat, so. yeah, the superboat that can't make it to water and solar space car, yeah, and the, and the rocket, the rockets. Yeah. Um, just to reiterate how quickly everything happened on January 23rd, the car maker published a blog post that had the headline Lightyear Decides to Fully Focus on Lightyear Two, and then on January 27th, they published another bo- blog post that said. Bankruptcy approved. (laughs) Forget it. But they had to, that was the other part part of the story that confused me. What do you think was the benefit of trying, do you think they were, they thought they could maybe buy more time on January 23rd when they're like, we're going to pivot to the two, we have 60,000 on order. Do you think maybe by saying that they were, it was a last ditch effort to try and get financing? Because it just, you have to know that you're close to bankruptcy.
2: Or maybe they were hoping the court would not agree with the bankruptcy oh, ruling. Gotcha. Basically
1: saying, hey, we've got these things moving. Don't shut us down yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Well, we're hoping Lightyear makes – well, Anna and I are hoping they make it. And Jeff is – I hope they are too. I just don't see it happening. Yeah, no. It's. I mean – I'm too real. That's very realistic. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff's keeping it real. I'm too real. Thanks for keeping it 100. Um, oh, please. God. <laughs> I'll use a different word next time. (laughs) All right. Our next most popular story this week. No, the most popular story this week. Driving a gas car now cheaper than an EV, according to a study. New research from Anderson Economic Group recently found that drivers of average mid-priced internal combustion engine cars paid about $11.29 to fuel their vehicles for 100 miles. That is about 31 cents cheaper than it costs to drive a mid priced EV the same distance if the driver is charging mostly at home. If the driver is powering their vehicles at commercial charging stations, they're paying about $3 more. According to AEG, it's the first time in 18 months that mid priced internal combustion engine cars have beat out EVs. Anna, it seemed like a very specific focus for the study. It seemed like it had a lot of variables to come to these numbers. Do you trust the study and what Anderson Economic Group came up with regarding ICE vehicles being cheaper to fuel their vehicles than EVs right now?
0: I mean, I guess you could look at it in that way, but I guess my question would be why. Um, I know the story got a lot of attention because of the push towards EVs that's happening right now. But I just want to reinforce the fact that the shift to EVs is not about price. It's not about creating a cheaper car that misses the point here. Mm -hmm. Um, we're trying to make ones that don't run on fossil fuels. Um, For this to be a new technology and the difference be so minimal, that seems like a a win to me when you consider the trade-off. And this is always going to be a fluctuating comparison. This is based on energy prices as a commodity. Um, It it fluctuates widely. We know that. Um, I think you want to also consider, and this was not incorporated into this study, but most automakers that are selling new EVs right now offer some sort of Companion package for free charging with those um, with those vehicle purchases. Yeah, that's true. Most of them like two or three years of free charging at these public infrastructure networks, whether it be EVgo or Electrify America. Which I know that those stations aren't everywhere. But you can... But it's an option. It's, it's yeah, and, and f- for people who are able to use that, like, that would be a huge... I mean, could you imagine buying a car and they're like, you can fill up at every Spirit Station for the next three years whenever you want? Like, mm-hmm. that would be a huge incentive to buy that. I don't know. That's like, that really cuts a lot of costs out. My guess is that was not taken into consideration. Um, and of course, I think once the resale market for EVs becomes more robust... You are going to get more buyers who don't get these types of manufacturer level incentives, of course. But with that will also come a leveling out on price of those vehicles as well. So you're going to get a better deal for the car, you know. Um, And again, I just want to remind you that gas can go up. Any time in price. We've seen that happen in, like, in insane ways. Um, yeah,
1: just the last few years. Just
0: the last few years. Um, you know, It doesn't seem to stop people from buying giant SUVs or trucks. Uh, so I just don't think that – I don't know w- why the study was done if there was not maybe some sort of motivation behind that to okay. make EVs look like a bad deal.
1: Okay. <laughs> Jeff, do you think that's the motivation just to make EVs look like a bad deal?
2: Well, you can as we know, you can turn statistics however you want to, mm-hmm. okay? I think in these in this instance, I think it is good that we do these types of studies from all different perspectives because it keeps everybody honest, so to speak. You can again, you can manipulate them to say what you want to and take on your perspective. What it really comes down to in my opinion when it comes down to EVs versus internal combustion engine vehicles when you look at the cost element, it's so individualized. It so depends on how you use that vehicle, where you're going. This this factored in mid-size EVs. What about SUVs? Okay. Oh, that's, well, what no, about that's, trucks? I yeah. mean, there's so many personal elements to the way automo- people use their vehicle. This is kind of hard mm-hmm. to, to do. I understand the premise, yeah. but I think that there's just so much personalization involved there.
1: That was a big part of the study as they said there's not enough uh, data on trucks, SUVs, luxury cars, and EVs. So that's why it was very specific to this sort of mid, uh, mid-level EV uh, and industrial uh, or internal combustion engine.
2: Well, and the other thing too, Anna touched on it in terms of your motivations for buying an electric vehicle. Okay. And you know, the, the environmental element is the obvious one. Cost plays a part, there's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. But well, there's also been companies that have done studies. There's a company called Jerry, and basically they're like an, an app that takes consumer information, provides it to insurance companies. One of the two two of the biggest reasons they found that people are interested in EVs are convenience. They don't mm-hmm. want to go to a gas station. OK, mm-hmm. you and I love going to quick trip for other reasons. Yeah. However, if you don't want to stop at a gas station all the time and you can, you know, you can trickle charge at home or you invest in the bigger charger, it's easier to do it that way. Mm-hmm. The other thing is they found out is people just think they're cooler. It's a social thing. Like yeah. they want to have this vehicle. Um, this weekend, my wife and I went down to a Badger game. Um, it was crappy outside. We didn't want to drive and deal with parking. Both Uber drivers had Teslas. So I was talking to them about it. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things they they talked about. Like, I don't have to go to a gas station. They like the fact that the acceleration is there. We've oh, talked yeah. about that a lot mm-hmm. with the stats. They like that it's they're going. Mm-hmm. They also, and this is definitely a societal shift. They didn't like they like that it was quieter. Oh yeah. I mean, growing up, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you wanted, wanted be you liked the engine revving. You liked the noise, you know that type of thing. That's a change. So there's other elements here. Polestar, which is a Swedish EV maker, oh, yeah. came out and said the main reason people want their cars is they like all the connectivity. Inside the vehicle, mm. they like being able to hook up to a hotspot. They like if it's got some of the autonomous features. They can watch Netflix, which isn't a good thing. Okay, I'm not <laughs> advocating yeah, don't, that. Don't do that. Yeah, but, please. but these are some of the other factors that are coming about that play at least as prominent a role as the cost of ownership. Yeah, so
1: it's just different. No, it's uh, and we're getting to that societal shift where it's sort of a keeping up with the Johnsons. Um, you know, Joneses. What is it? Joneses. It's Joneses. Yeah, it's always been Johnsons for me. It's no. never been it's Johnsons. No, no. I just had two neighbors that were both named Johnson. Is you don't not- need
0: to, you don't need to keep up with them. You need to keep up with the Joneses.
1: I've been keeping up with the wrong people my entire life. I apologize, but now that everyone's trying to keep up with these Johnsons, is that have we reached a, like a critical, like a breaking point, or not a breaking point, but like an inflection point where there are enough people that want the street cred of an EV? street Yeah. I mean, a little bit. I
2: think it is. I think it is sort of a, I don't know. I wouldn't even say a hierarchy thing. It's just kind of, hey, this is what we should be doing. There's sort of a societal departure, I guess,
1: from the paradigm. I think there is a little bit of that. Uh, And I did want to mention some of these caveats when it came to how they calculated this because, Jeff, you're right. You can massage the numbers in any way, especially when you have calculating driving costs, um, being calculated using... Uh, underlying the cost of energy sources like gas, diesel and electric uh, state taxes for road maintenance, the cost of operating a pump or charger and the cost of driving to a fueling station or deadhead miles just had a lot of, you know, I just see somebody with the advocates like, no, 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 no. It's gotta, it's gotta be more. Mm -hmm. It's gotta be more. Um, But I don't know. I think both of you guys raised really good points about how the EV movement is happening. And it seems like the ball just continues to roll forward. And uh, when people kind of push back on it, it seems like they're, you know, kind of being left behind a little bit. Well, there's no need to criminalize either one. You've got all the information. Do what's right for you. Yeah. All right. Well, before we move on to in case you missed it, we have another word from our sponsor, Unit 202 Productions. If you aren't creating video content for your business, you're missing out. Why is video so important? Increase conversions, increase email marketing click-through rates, improve SEO, build trust, help explain complex subjects and equipment, and improve social media engagement. How many of you view video content on a daily basis? Isn't it time people start viewing some of yours? Promote your brand with Unit 202. Let's get to work. And we're back. But before we get started with In Case You Missed It, producer Eric said that we played either a Unit 202 Productions commercial or possibly Oil Eater. I'm not sure, but either way, support the sponsors of the podcast. They're both great. (laughs) In Case You Missed It, the stories that, you know, maybe weren't as popular on the website, but still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. I'll go first this week because when I picked the In Case You Missed It, it was not in the top five, but it, over the last few hours, it really caught on and got a lot more traffic and would have wound up in the top five. But once we already had it said, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't want to betray the sanctity of our format, but also, you know, we already had our notes, man. So you stand on a wall, David. <laughs> it's about a shape-shifting robot that escaped a jail cell in a test.
0: Why did they put this robot in jail? For the test. Because. Did he commit a crime? It's
1: a human thing to do. You should have seen the atrocities. A multidisciplinary team of engineers from multiple universities may not have cited Terminator 2 as inspiration, but their miniature shape-shifting robots look like they came straight off the Skynet Skynet production line. The material is called magnetoreactive liquid-solid phase transitional matter, or... MPTM, and the team recently put it through its paces to test its, quote, shape morphing. A video from the study shows a robot inspired by a Lego minifig escape a cage by turning into liquid. It is pulled through the bars by an external magnetic field and then restores its original uh, state by flowing into a mold. The material also jumped a 21 millimeter moat climbed a 12-millimeter wall, and split up to cooperatively move objects before merging back together. The study also said the material could bear about 66 pounds and move approximately 3.3 miles per hour. I don't know if you guys had an opportunity to watch the video of this happening, but it is creepy, it is cool, and it is real life t1000 stuff man because it was interesting to see this you know first of all probably wrongfully accused minifig behind Mm. bars and unknowing how it's going to escape it melts is drawn out and then reforms it's incredible it was uh i've you know i've it's happened we've had 104 of these now happens all the time where there's cool new technology And I'm just really excited by it. Some of the other things they did in this test, you know, where the uh, material splits and then uh, does other tasks before reforming. This is pretty revolutionary stuff. So
0: David, besides like this thing being able to breach the wall of a medieval castle, like what does it do? What is it supposed to do?
1: So it could be used for a bunch of different applications. Um, One could be wireless circuit assembly and repair. It could be used for assembling parts in hard to reach spaces, um, removing foreign objects from a stomach. It could be yeah, used for. Dr- weird would
2: that be? I know.
1: Well, I mean, we talk about, you know, we talk about nanorobots being used for healing and drug delivery all the time. Um, oh,
0: it's in the stomach right now. I'm watching the video.
1: Yeah, it could be used for drug delivery for the stomach. Kind of think of it as, you know, whenever we think of autonomous robots or autonomous drones working in swarms to particularly solve a problem like after a a disaster or human recovery, something like that, Mm -hmm. they can kind of do all of that working in concert just on a much smaller scale. And the fact that it can uh, melt... Into such, The biggest thing is that there have been previous materials before that have been able to melt from a solid state and then reform. But this one is that it really liquefies to be more of a watery substance. Uh, that's part of the um, this that's really cool. But yeah, the possibilities are kind of endless for a material like this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool.
1: No, it was amazing watching that. I
2: would say, though, they should maybe hire Studio 202 yeah. to do some of their video work because it could have been, been done a little crisper. Yeah, a little bit clear. Unit
1: 202. Well, <laughs> unit 202. Well,
0: Jeff doesn't see the the sponsor ads. He just
1: right. He just it's shouted it. out a different sponsor. Yeah. Go to Studio 202, not Unit 202. <laughs> you got to keep up with those Johnsons. Um, <laughs> 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 no, I uh, I think that part of whenever you see the video come out of these studies, they never know what they're going to get. Right. So they basically set up some of these cameras on time lapse, and then they come back. They're like, "Oh, it worked!" You know, like yeah, uh, that's pretty weird. And so. and so that's why you get a lot of this mm-hmm. footage, and it's pretty crude. It's a, it's a lot of times it's cell Just phone like a, footage, a
0: trail cam or something.
1: Yeah. So, but it's uh, it's incredible. Really looking forward to see what comes next from this team of engineers, and you know, hopefully it's not you know what was t- T1000 like a cybernetic. It was a problem. Uh, yeah, yeah, it didn't work. It didn't work. Well, out the well. fact
2: that it can only hold sixty six pounds right now,
1: that gives us a little bit of time.
2: It can only hold sixty
1: six pounds, but it's tiny.
2: It's also like three point three miles per hour. I feel like I could get away. Yeah, right now, <laughs>
0: like it's chasing <laughs> you from the ground. It's just like it just like just keeps coming. just yeah.
1: so slow. Like uh, that would just be a really fun mm. <clears throat> pre prequel where you're being chased by the super slow T one thousand. Just like. No, never mind. But I mean, they never stop. Yeah. yeah it's, they it's, never stop. Gonna come. It's like tortoise and hare here. <laughs> yeah. Um, Brandt says, it sounds like an Area 51 leak. <laughs> yeah, I like it. A little creepy. Um, Anna, what is your, in case you missed it this week?
0: All right. Uh, the story I selected this week is about Ford cutting the price on its Mustang Mach-E after Tesla trimmed some prices on some of its models. Um, Obviously, the Ford Mach-E is a very popular model right now. Um, Ford says it's cutting prices on this electric SUV by as much as $6,000. This was just weeks after market leader Tesla took similar steps. Um, So Ford is increasing production on the Mach-E. They're hoping to take advantage of streamlined costs as they do so and reduce prices across the board. Uh, they didn't mention Tesla in their statement, but I think the writing was, that was just sort of underneath it. Everyone thought that was pretty clear because it was right after Tesla had slashed prices on their models by, um, a pretty dramatic up to 20%. Oh, wow. Uh, so NPR published an interesting piece on this scenario that pointed out that Tesla, who's been doing this EV thing for a while now, um, and has a very good profit margin, uh, can cut prices whereas a lot of other automakers that are just getting into the EV game uh, they're going to be pressured to do so but they're not there yet right there some of them are still producing EVs at a loss um, and if they are making any money on them which many of them are not uh, it's not much right it's a very tight margin Right. GM has said that they won't cut prices um, but uh, as NPR points out we are going to start to see and have already seen some of the uh, trickle down impact of the Tesla price cuts hit even the pre-owned market already where EVs are starting to go down in price by as much as like five points compared to a few weeks ago. Wow. Um, so I thought it was an interesting story because I fully expected this, but I didn't really think it would be now. I thought it'd be in like a year or two uh, yeah. where we would start to see some of the price go down on some of these EVs. T- to me, it was just such an interesting case where in a competitive market like this, the pricing actions of one major player um, can have such an impact on the baseline uh, price of a product. You know, mm. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if auto is in general going to try to ride this out um, or if there's going to be more price uh, cuts on some of these EVs. We'll have to wait and see on that. Um, you kind of hope that it doesn't become status quo, even though you know obviously everyone wants a deal. But I just don't think that It's, I don't think, uh, to NPR's point, I don't think many of these automakers are ready to do that yet. Tesla put a lot of pressure on by doing this.
1: I was surprised. I understand pressure on all other automakers, but Jeff, I was surprised by the Mustang Mach-E because we keep, every time we talk about the Mach-E, what do we also talk about? We talk about the wait list. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. what I was
2: surprised too. Like even as, I was just looking at that as of September of last year, there was a six month wait list for this vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. So that was very surprising. I, I think this is dangerous for ford to follow suit i understand obviously why but getting involved in a race to the bottom that's not something you want to do especially not with something that has the mustang name attached to mm-hmm. it that's because,
1: not a, that's not like a cheap product
2: yeah i mean you've got such a legacy brand and so much invested in that brand to pick that particular vehicle or even like the ford it'd be like they did the same thing with the f-150 with mm-hmm. the lightning or something yeah um Yeah, that's kind of a head scratcher. I don't I don't quite get I understand the market dynamic. Yeah. I don't understand the selection of that particular product to do it with.
0: All I can think of is that Ford has been very clear about their ambitions in terms of electrification. True. And I think they wanna be seen as a Tesla. I think they wanna be like we are all in on this and we are gonna compete in this market with Tesla head to head. Mm -hmm. I don't know.
1: Uh, Carrie, who's watching us live, suggested a new title for the podcast. Perhaps just a new segment. Jeff, keeping it real.
0: Ooh, oh, I like that. Or how about David keeping
1: up with, up with, the-, <laughs> with the Johnson's? Keeping up with the Johnson's with David Hmm. I think that ha- that segment has some real staying power. Mm-hmm. No Johnson's going to keep up with that. <laughs> Jeff, what is your in case you missed it this week? Oh, man. How do I follow that one?
2: Can't keep up. Um, also, an, another sort of electric vehicle-related story here. I picked out when a GM has conditionally okayed a $650 million investment in a Nevada, Nevada lithium mine. Um, General Motors has conditionally agreed to invest $650 million in Lithium America corporations with a Lithium Americas corporation in a deal that will give GM exclusive access to to the first phase of a mine planned near the Nevada-Oregon line with the largest known source of lithium in the U.S. Now, this is contingent on a number of things, some of which probably are not a big surprise. First of all, there is a huge pushback um, from environmental groups, from Native American groups. They don't want people up here. They think it's going to pollute everything. There's also concerns on preserving that area for historical purposes and everything that's associated with it. What's interesting is we got also the same type of proponents for it. People saying, we need EVs, we need lithium to create these batteries. Mm -hmm. They're saying that the amount of lithium that is going to come out of this particular mine in its first year, will be able to power up to a million electric vehicles. Wow. So big battle. And I think it's interesting on a couple of fronts as well. You see a company like GM getting involved right with the raw material yes. they're skipping the supply chain so to speak or the traditional supply chain and going right to the source we saw Tesla doing some of the same things yep getting involved in these mining processes this is a mine that probably even if everything goes smoothly and they get the ok's and right now it's hung up in court and a lot of legal proceedings won't even be online till like 2023 okay or excuse me 2025 okay I'm like, this year, wow, So (laughs) getting after it. And the money that GM is conditionally (laughs) laying out would be delivered in two different um, stipends, if you will, uh, or two different draws. So there's a lot around this company. um, Lithium Americas Corp needs GM, but first they need to get through all the legal battles. Then they only get half of it to set up the structure. Then they get the other half to start producing the lithium and getting it to GM for all these electric vehicles. What's interesting is you then have the political component – Whereas you've got President Biden and the Democratic Party typically is more pro-environment than they Mm -hmm. would be pro-mining. But they also have an agenda here for electric vehicles that they're trying to push to the point where you even saw the Democratic senator from West Virginia come out and say, this is great. Mm -hmm. We need to do this and push this through, which I'm sure puts him in opposition or at least puts his party in opposition to a lot of people that support a lot of President who voted for and supported President Biden. So just a lot of different components. This would be the largest investment in a mine that any automaker has ever made. Mm. Yeah, So a lot of different things at work there when we talk about, again, how are we going to balance this need for these minerals with the potential issues that surround mining and obtaining them?
1: Yeah. I, you bring this issue up almost every time we have one of these stories because something has to get. We need these materials yeah. sourced in the U.S., but... Mining is, I I just, uh, the way I always sort of uh, approach mining is I hope that we learn from the mistakes of previous mining operations and try to do it better. Because a lot of the argument on our website and online is about, if you want EVs, you need this. And it's just pretty cut and dry, Anna.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, you definitely have a lot of people to your point that are like, pro-ev but are also kind of not in my backyard about the mines Mm -hmm. and you can see i'm not saying that to be remiss i i get that i mean nobody wants a mine in their backyard yeah (laughs) it's such
2: a political such a weird political bedfellows here as well i mean whoever thought the democrats would get in bed with mining mm -hmm. i mean that is that's just such an awkward situation potentially for them politically And then the supply chain dynamic, this is really where I think there's going to be so much, or these things are going to be resolved pro or con much more quickly because you've got these bigger companies with so much more money coming into play.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, before we get out of here this week, let's go on to our final thoughts. Anna, what final thought do you have for uh, the listeners at home?
0: All right. Well, today uh, – you're not going to get this on the same day as we recorded it, but today was Groundhog's Day. Mm. And um, I am told that, there will be six more weeks of winter, which I think is like the bad one, but in Wisconsin, six more weeks of winter is like, oh, that's actually pretty good. Yeah. Like that gets us to like- <laughs> Can you limit it to six? <laughs> yeah. That gets us to mid-March, cool. Like uh, it's 10 more weeks of winter that I don't want. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was exciting to hear. My, um, my five-year-old twins this morning were super excited to see what Mr. G had to say. That's the, They have a puppet in their classroom named oh. Mr. G. He's the groundhog. Very nice. Um, but uh, yeah, they said more winter, so- we're here for it. Six more weeks, though. That's it. That's all I'm doing.
1: <laughs> you're uh, you're not going to, when we have that 10-inch snowfall in April, you yeah. just like, but the groundhog.
0: But I didn't sign up for this. Phil's
1: a liar. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Uh, no, actually, Groundhog's Day is also my brother Ryan's birthday. So, Ryan, if you're watching, happy birthday. Hope you have a good one. Um, also, a great story for kids if they're into groundhogs is uh, Wake Up Groundhog. It's very good It about uh, Punxsutawney Phyllis. Pretty good. Um, <laughs> Seth, who's watching us live, just says, fingers, cro- fingers crossed, no snow in May. No, so, Seth, agreed? I won't. <laughs> Big softball offer. I
0: won't tolerate oh, no. it.
1: Um, I always like it when it snows for the first couple of games of softball. <laughs> it's like, mm, it's Wisconsin. Um, my final thoughts this week uh, – the first we had a really cool comment from Alex Gray. We were talking last week about the A380 parts and which ones we would, which ones would be fun to buy. And I can't <laughs> believe I left this out. Uh, Alex says the slides.
0: Ooh, the escape slide, yeah, right? Slide. Yeah.
1: He says when it comes to surplus A380 parts, I'm shocked that you wouldn't immediately go for the evacuation slide. You know what, Alex? I was shocked I forgot that as well. Putting this on your roof, on the roof of your house, would make your kids the most popular in the neighborhood. I'm not saying I necessarily want more kids at my house. Um, but if you have a pool, it's the thing that leads to the thing.
2: Oh there you go.
1: he just fit them all into a neat box, and thank you, Alex. <laughs> and I will on the next auction flirt with that slot. Um, my other final thought was. This previous weekend, we had the opportunity to take in some casual entertainment in the form of monster trucks, Yes, which are amazing. And I will also say that it was just really um, a fine line between whether or not Buckshot would take out Alcatraz in the final, and it was just made for some really high drama.
0: Mm -hmm. So who did?
1: But Buckshot persevered. Mm -hmm. It was really, you know, they built it up, but... I was going to win, far and away. Um, but seeing the excitement of all the kids in the audience, you know, and the grown-ups, but the kids, it made me think the cloud of smog inside the poorly ventilated facility aside that... There was had to be an incredible kind of STEM outing without me knowing it because my kids were asking questions about how do they make the truck so big? How are the tires so big? Why is the bus monster truck that we're about to ride spraying oil everywhere and is that safe? Um, So is or would you guys say that going to see monster trucks is a STEM activity?
2: Um, Engineering perspective, absolutely. I mean, when you look at what they need to do, all the different materials that are involved in those trucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, the mechanic, the mechanical element of it itself is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, how they're able to
1: just stay upright, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> balanced. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I was just like, in the moment, I'm like, no, this is not just yeah, like cool parent <clears> stuff. <throat> I think this is, we have teachable moments here.
0: Can I ask, was the dinosaur there that like chops the cars? No, there there was no, there was no
1: like Motozilla if you're Mm. into the elbow grease books. But uh, there were a lot of, what I liked was that the, the event was sponsored by a local like ZB Recycling and Salvage, huh. which must have just provided the cars that they were smashing. Yeah, and so there was no shortage of smashing cars and pieces flying everywhere. I've joked about how I like an event where you can't sit in the first ten rows because of projectiles. Um, and you know we got to see we got to see him change a monster truck tire mm-hmm. because one just landed right on uh the front panel of this car and just deflated the tire, and it was actually. Pretty cool to see like a NASCAR pit crew work on like a monster truck. Wow. Yeah, that would be amazing. So, no, but we will look, for, we will inquire about said car eating monster for the next one. Yeah. Because there will be a next one. Yeah. Um, Jeff, what is your final thought this week? Well, this
2: weekend is um, the annual high school presentation of Shakespeare. No. Oh. Which I always appreciate the kids' ability to, because Shakespeare, the language is incredibly difficult i don't know how to say it like taxing like and the kids do a great job with it i miss half of what they're saying Mm -hmm. yeah so if anybody has any tips on how to actually understand shakespeare and the words coming out of their mouths i would be grateful for it because i feel like i hardly know what's going
1: on until like something super dramatic does happen and you're like
0: why is that guy dead oh wait a minute
1: okay okay yeah is it a specific play they're doing are they just doing like vignettes from different no
2: it is and i'm shame to admit I forgot the name of the play. Okay. I mean, it's, is it As You Like It? As You Like It. You like it. it's yeah. As You Like It, yeah. So I haven't seen that one before, so mm-hmm. it'll be good that way, but I just feel so out of place because this was nothing I ever did in high school
1: or had any association with, so I'm learning yeah. more. There has to be an As You Like It movie, which could help maybe, but I will say I love to read uh, Shakespeare, and it really helps to understand it if you're reading it yeah. because you just process it differently because you're – um building it in your own mind's eye yeah because like romeo
2: and juliet last year you know the story you yeah what's you going on um so i'm looking forward to it kids always work hard um it's always a good time but yeah i just feel like i'm missing things there's jesse, some oh sorry go ahead oh go ahead
1: i was gonna say jesse who's watching us live and i guess an admitted <laughs> cheater <coughs> says just get the cliff notes
0: jesse <laughs> just Jeff I
1: found- oh that's points. terrible
0: Jeff, I found this thing called schmoop.com. dot com and
2: sounds like something I would sounds visit very Jeff. frequently. Yeah,
0: you 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 have never used it.
2: You gotta shmoop it. That's right.
0: You can tr- translate English into Shakespearean. Oh, that's not helpful. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I need the I need the exact yeah, opposite. Forget it. But you can't go the other way?
0: I it's not I don't know, maybe I haven't spent much time so on schmoop. So what is
1: uh the thing that leads to the thing in Shakespearean? Can you schmoop that?
0: okay i'll try it hold on
1: all right um the first live schmooping on our podcast
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh you want to know what it is yeah the thing that leadeth to the thing (laughs) That's Good it. Good thing it was we just, took some
1: time to figure that one yeah. out. Just uh, you have to drop that one after the uh, after the performance <laughs> when you're telling you know you give the flowers you do the flowers right sure okay yeah you got to say I believe that career wise this is the thing that leadeth to the thing oh yeah
0: your daughters you'll, you'll be
1: able to hear the eye roll yeah they
0: will not be embarrassed at all by that oh so. they will be
2: embarrassed they'll just ignore me like you know, mm. they always do so uh, do we have.
1: <laughs> You yeah, have trivia this week.
2: We do. First of all, we had huge response to the podcast polling question from last week, asking, "Would you advise an incoming non-management worker to join a union? Why or why not?" Do you want to get to that one
1: first? Sure. Uh, before this, uh, Branch, who's still watching us live, it says Anna's fact checking should have done that last week. Oh, oh, burn! Burn! Oh, burn! burn! Ah! Harsh! <laughs> Harsh!
2: <laughs>
0: In my defense, two Volvos, what? All right, I, I earned that burn.
1: That's all right. At least you're just getting facts wrong. You're not getting entire idioms wrong that have been around for hundreds of years. Uh, Jeff?
2: <laughs> so like I said, we had a lot of response to the poll question about unions. Uh, I'll start with one here from Will. He said, I believe if I were to start a new company and the question of union was brought up, I believe I'd have a company that would be successful without it. The current work climate is in favor of employee, and there's so much media coverage of employers who do not treat workers equitably that whatever benefit a union may have fostered previously is implied. The mentality of frontline leaders is also shifting away from one of dominant to one of civil treatment. It's a bold statement, but if an employee can lead with humility, treat people equitably, and not take advantage of its worker, the union is unnecessary. Yeah, I would agree. That isn't always the case, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But we had a lot of different input here. Another one from Tim. He said he was an engineer at GM. The UAW severely lessened his opinion of unions. They could get mm-hmm. away with a lot of stuff on the job. However, times have changed. Companies with new timekeeping tools definitely have the upper hand. So his response is, would you advise an incoming non-management worker to join a union? He said yes. Okay. Ralph said no. Um, he said um, His experience working in a couple of different union facilities, uh, working with individuals who were unable to be rewarded uh, because of the union obligations. He listened to the complaints from the union brotherhood about those instances, but he was helpless to do anything about it. So sometimes the bureaucracy definitely got in the way. Mm. Another one from David. uh, He said unions are run by people in a popularity contest, which has little or nothing to do with whether they can do the job or not. So he said no. Um, Another one here. uh, Let's see. Too good, one here. Travis had some interesting comments. He said he would not. He said um, he would, he has been working for 35 years, started at the bottom, is now a plant manager. Business is not the enemy. If you don't like where you're at, fix it
1: or move on. Hard lessons from Travis.
2: The last one I thought, um, this was actually from somebody who did not leave their name, but they said they would not join a union, but I thought they actually kind of had the best overall perspective on things. They said a lot of it depends on the company and the way it operates and the industry. Unions have been great for protecting workers, but they've also been a hindrance getting things done. I believe they can provide protection to underperforming individuals who may use it as a crutch. So again, it does depend on the situation. Mm -hmm. Overall, respondents were two to one against Joining, advising against joining a union. Mm. So,
1: well, non-union supported. Thank you for the feedback. Yeah, Anonymous. <laughs> what is the, uh, are we going to do trivia again this week?
2: Yeah, we'll do another podcast polling question. This one's pretty straightforward. We talked a lot about this stuff um, in this episode. And basically, we just want to know if you've ever looked the way for, about a known safety issue at a facility you were working at. In other words, you're serious, you saw something along the lines of duct tape over the lockout tagout. Did you look the other way and let it go? Yes or no? And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what you saw. Mm. So, just want to get some feedback there in terms of how people are viewing safety. And if, again, because
1: of some of those different pressures within the facility, have you looked the other way? Maybe yeah, you shouldn't. A lot of anonymous responses to that one. How long has it been since we've done an actual trivia question? And have I been calling the podcast polling question trivia ever since? Um
2: you go back and forth. I okay. just I just go skating right over the top of it. Thanks I for burning really, past that one. Yeah, I don't really dwell on it too much. That's good. That's good. I will. Our fact checker will get after that. Yeah. That's right. There
0: Brand, is no get on this. There is no right or wrong answer to anything.
2: <laughs> if you have some ideas for trivia, David. I would welcome them, but we have a very smart audience and I want to try to come up with something they can't
1: just Google. <laughs> so. No, I, uh, I like the polling <laughs> questions. I just want to make sure that I call them the correct <laughs> thing. I really like this because I like how it um, continues the conversation you with everybody comments, that's listening. Yeah. Um, and I really like, I mean, the feedback's pretty insightful. Mm-hmm. So I find myself learning stuff from different situations that people kind of offer. So keep it up. It's great. All right. Well, before we get out of here, Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email, the podcast, in the subject line. Make sure to subscribe to our daily and or weekly newsletters and subscribe to us on YouTube at IEN Magazine to join us live every Thursday. Make sure to you are keeping up with the Johnsons. For Jeff Franke and Anna Wells, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.